Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Usually around this time of year, we will rebroadcast a popular uh, previous episode from like a few years back or one that we think is particularly interesting or relevant. And uh, this week, Kristen Tideman, our media guru, she has selected our rebroadcast, which is The Quagmire of Modern Missions, released in June of 2020, right around uh, the death of George Floyd. And that was an interesting topic then. It wasn't kind of like the main topic in the zeitgeist, but it's kind of back because as some of you have maybe seen, there is a film coming out about that missionary John Chow, who uh, went to those unreached people um, and got himself killed. And there was a lot of controversy around that. Also on Max, a show called Savior Complex uh, premiered in the last few months. Tony thinks that Josh and I should watch it. And on our next Generation Gap Culture Hour for patrons, he is going to make the case as to why we should watch it. We'll see if he uh, convinces us or not. But this conversation was one uh, that really stuck with me. I loved it at the time. We got a lot of really interesting feedback from the episode as well. So it seems to be a good candidate. I think Kristen made a great choice for our kind of holiday week rebroadcast. Appreciate your guys' support. Um, In case you haven't heard or seen... Our second son was born, 
happy and healthy on December 9th. And we love him. We're doing great. People are bringing us food. We are getting almost enough sleep through heroic efforts. And uh, not by me, by by Jaffrey, of course, my wife. Uh, But thank you guys for all the support. We will see you in the new year with some new episodes. I had Kristen and Josh give me notes, and and Kristen had a good idea here. I I shouldn't have gone without a chance to make an unto us a child is born joke. She's right. So I'm tacking it on at the end, uh, even though it would have been funnier to do it earlier. Okay, into the episode. Modern Missions and Missionaries. Something that I try to be very aware of is not simply talking shit on this show. Not just criticizing and tearing down, not just deconstructing. And I had a number of options when it came to choosing an interview subject for the topic of international missions work. I specifically did not choose anyone who was no longer doing that work or who was entirely or largely negative in their outlook. I do realize there are problems in missionary work, and you're going to hear about a lot of them today. But the Randalls, Brianna and Jim, are still in that work. They're, I think, doing really good work. Um, But yeah, this, uh, this industry is a quagmire. So many separate and powerful forces make it extremely difficult to both do something helpful and be able to verify that it's actually helping in the long run. Uh, And there's a lot of room in this industry for bad actors because generally speaking, missions employees are further from public and private scrutiny than people in other ministry jobs, for instance. Now, I do hope that you hear Brianna and Jim's genuine love for their friends in Myanmar throughout this conversation And I think that you will. And I hope that you don't leave too disheartened. There's a lot of problems, but people like them give me hope that there is a possible better future for this kind of work for Christianity in the future. All right, let's get into it. Brianna and Jim, thank you guys so much for joining me together. And thank you to Danielle Mayfield, DL, to her readers for introducing us, Brianna. I guess I'd like to start by just getting some background. There's a lot of different kinds of missionaries. There's a lot of people at different points on sort of various faith spectrums who do this work. And so I want to get a sense for who you guys actually are and what your actual work is so that nobody is filling in those blanks based on other people they know who, broadly speaking, are missionaries. So can we start with just can you guys describe your Christian faith? Uh, And I'm also interested if that faith has changed in any meaningful way since you began doing this work? Without going too far back, probably typical, like, evangelical style, like, Assemblies of God was, like, kind of my faith background. And going further back, my parents were involved in, like, a super Pentecostal cult-type thing in the Seattle area. My, like, decision to go overseas uh, came after I finished college, It was like a statistical type of a decision. Not that I knew a lot of the numbers, but I was aware there's like a bajillion different Bible translations that we have in English available to us. And um, I was talking to a friend who was uh, with Campus Crusade, and he told me about this organization that that sent people on these like two-year projects to do oral Bible translation. I thought that's something 
that's something I can do. I can go, like, I don't know if I can do it or not, but I can leave. And if anything happens, I'm single. Like, my mom will miss me if I die. Like, I can go do something dangerous for God. Like, <laughs> was kind of the, some of the thought process. But, and that, like, the adventure kind of go be a martyr, like, idea was definitely in there. And that was, like, some of the marketing that was used to sell the projects and stuff. And so I ended up moving with another guy from Washington over to Myanmar in 2006. The way that I've seen the world and the way that I've seen Christianity has changed quite a bit over that time. Yeah, maybe we'll save how it's changed because I think some of that's going to come out in this conversation uh, based on my little notes of what we're going to go through here. Yeah. Uh, for me, I met Jim right after 2012, which if people follow the news from Myanmar, was um, when the Rohingya and the Rakhine communities had communal violence that sent all the Rohingya people into ghettos and really destroyed the communities in Western Myanmar. So we met around that time. So when I married him and moved to Myanmar, that was we moved to Myanmar together in 2015. And I think around that time that we moved there, I was really still kind of carrying a lot of, I was, I grew up in a reformed background, kind of had the voice of John Piper in my head as I head overseas, a lot of that kind of rhetoric inspiring my sense of commitment to the work and just getting to know people and already having the gym, having had been there for nine years, a lot of that started to fall away pretty quickly. I have so many objections to John Piper now, but I think the primary one that I see uh, based on my life there and listening to people is just how much of his faith is infused with white supremacy and how much of his call to missions is infused with the self-forgetfulness that is so inherent in white supremacy. And not a healthy self-forgetfulness. And not a healthy one either, yeah. I think that summarizes it without getting too deeply into my theological background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, generally speaking, I could do with quite a bit more self-forgetfulness, but that's not the, the type that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. A quick, I have a couple of questions. First of all, how does one meet and marry a missionary living in Myanmar while not living in Myanmar. Is there anything we need to know about this? The meat, the meat cute here. Uh, it's a website called DesperateMissionaries.com. But just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Jim, it's so, such a. I met way. her at a potluck. A, a church at a potluck. Church, it's and then really I embarrassing. Her on Facebook. Yeah, I found me on Facebook. He started messaging me. I thought he was trying to get supporters, which in the end, I guess he was. Um, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did not, I was not really interested in dating a missionary. And I, our first date, I, I agreed to a date with him and it was like two days before he's headed back to Myanmar. And the whole time I just grilled him about it. Got well, him. and I also told you that a relationship wouldn't be contingent on that. like Right, which is also unusual. That's a whole other set of mission subculture. Right. But most yeah. people are kind of like, you're marrying the mission field. And yeah. that was not at all part of our relationship. So objecting to it was kind of where we got started, which is why we are where we are now, I think. So after we got engaged, I visited Myanmar and I hated it so much. Um, when I visited, I'd never been to a non-Western country before. And it was just a huge shock, um, the poverty. And I just could not stand the thought of living there. And I did not like the missions culture that I saw either. It just made me feel so trapped, especially as a woman. So I just wasn't thrilled about it at all. And then, you know, 
after we got married, we had a lot of stuff with a really abusive leader in the organization that Jim was a part of. And so we had to sort through that and ended up leaving that organization before moving overseas. So a ton of those things also influenced my experience because Jim wasn't like, well, we're going to go no matter what. And we're going to go with this organization no matter what. Um, If that had been the case, I don't think we'd be talking to you right now. So, yeah. You wouldn't be allowed to be talking to me right now. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Well, I don't. I guess I don't really know how tight-fisted these various groups are internally. Uh, I think you'd have trouble talking to yeah people. Like so, um, yeah. when John Chow was yeah. killed, I had a friend with a major linguistics organization who was talking to me about it, and she was really interested in sharing her opinion. And the New York Times or some other group was anonymously collecting people's opinions. And she, and she was like, yeah, I really want to do this. And then she messaged me a bit later. She's like, I checked with my supervisor. He says, we're not allowed to get involved in anything political. And I was just like, wow, that's anonymous. Like they're not even asking you to share your name for an interview. I wonder if there's a similar principle to like people who are politicians where it's like, if you really want to be a politician, you probably shouldn't be one. And maybe if you really want to be a missionary, you probably shouldn't be one in in terms of the kind of stuff that we're about to talk about, you know, all these pitfalls and things you could fall into. Like maybe the fact that you guys were like skeptical of all that stuff. Well, Jim, you weren't when you were in your early twenties, but by the time, Mm -hmm. By the time Brianna comes into the picture, even more skeptical, maybe that's uh, frankly the way it ought to be. Yeah. Well, and I don't think there's room for skepticism because you have to be, well, I mean, Crusade, for example, their whole name is based on this like dogmatic, like to the death devotion to an idea. So you get overseas, you, you're you committed to this work and you have all these supporters who think you're a hero. So you really are like forced to like have this persona no matter how. And I think that that can explain a lot. Like there's just a lot of unhealthy people in missions. And I think that that can explain a lot because you just can't afford to ask yourself really hard questions about your identity or for your faith to change. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, there, there's so many angles to that and we'll see which ones come up, but I've spoken with Danielle about this and she started writing back when they were still in Minnesota kind of before her um, her book writing career took off when she was just like starting to do columns for McSweeney's and stuff. And she was writing really frankly about like the kind of sort of bullshit emails they had to write their supporters versus what they really were thinking. And this is how you basically have to sell it if you're going to get money. Uh, and this is what the evangelicals want to hear back home. But it's actually opposite of what we should be doing. And I mean, it's just from a psychological angle, that's like about as interesting as it gets within this particular faith community. But moving along, just give us like a day in the life, like before the pandemic exiled you to Australia, where you are currently, what would a day or a week or whatever look like for you guys on the ground? Well, okay. For the last year and a half, anyway, I've been writing a book about what we're discussing. So a day in the life is, uh, I don't know, getting up around six or seven with kids feeding them breakfast. Um, we don't own a car, so we have, um, e-bikes and we commute with our e-bikes. And so put one of our daughter on the bike, ride her to school. It's a 20 minute ride away at bilingual school, take her to school. Then usually from there, go and write for the rest of the day until school pickup time. Um, and are you in an uh, urban area? Are you in a rural area? Like just basics like that? Oh yeah. We're in an urban area. So the city of Yangon is where we live and it's over 5 million people, at least the ones who are allowed to be counted by census. Unbelievable. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So by by the way, this is a, a crazy thing that people in the West 
do not realize, but I, I played in a, I played with a buddy's band and we went to China three times. And uh, one of those times we went to nine cities and I had been to China before, mind you, on tour. And of the nine cities, I think I had heard of four or five of them. And I don't remember the exact math, but something like seven out of nine were bigger than Los Angeles. And you just mm-hmm. never heard of them. And there's just 11 million people living in this city you've never heard of. Uh, and yeah. that is just a total, it's just incredible when you get your mind around that. Yeah. Well, and also in the time of coronavirus, it's really incredible how well that's aside, but how well the spread has been managed in these really densely populated places. So yeah, there's just a ton of people in that section of the world. So uh, Jim, what about you? What's the day look like? Yeah. So the last couple of years, I've had a few different things I've been working on. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, I am familiar with it. And I shouldn't say this, but I'm very skeptical about it. <laughs> no offense. If you're, that's all right. you know, that's fine. It's not going to affect our, uh, our uh, working relationship here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've been working on translating that um, into Burmese with a local, local partner. Friend. And then recently, Brianna had this idea to make bottles out of bamboo. So you can have like a biodegradable container. And so I've been working on making some machinery to manufacture those. That's awesome. So we're ready to swing into more manufacturing, but on pause because of coronavirus right now. So for sure. Yeah. By the way, and I'm, you know, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scale, but uh, it would be kind of awesome to like translate the Jesus storybook Bible, but just purposefully mistranslate all the penal substitutionary atonement stuff. Into, <laughs> to a place where like nobody would know that you did that and you're just giving people just like a much better theological product all <laughs> under the noses of the original publishers. That's like my like the part of me that grew up watching Robin Hood 500 times as a kid. <laughs> that's what I want to do. The thing about translating something and working with Americans yeah, are so, so monolingual that this is like a part of our life that is just People don't get it. They're like, yay, translation. They think that means like you're plugging something into Google Translate and getting the exact Like people who only know one language don't know anything about what translating something is like. And there are people who know more languages that also don't know what you should (laughs) translate something like. Um, I've been working with the local believer lady. She has all the deciding power on how things are translated, what we translate, what we leave in, what we leave out. Yeah, so if I were to take what we have and like do a word for word back translation of, of it. Yeah. I'd, I'm sure some people would be upset because um, <laughs> yeah. there are things in there that, that I was not a fan of how they were. The prodigal everything. son, for example, um, in the book, the prodigal son is used as basically saying it focuses only on if, the younger. It son. talks only about the younger son. That seemed to me to be really missing everything that that was trying to say um, to, to focus exclusively on the younger son is like, the, the most the <laughs> most neo-Calvinist thing you could ever do. Like the most, yeah. it's like a caricature of an un, unself-aware neo-Calvinist right there. So true. There's yeah. no yeah. Pharisees in this story. People who have all the answers figured out that need to come off their high horse. Where, where's this yeah. character? Anyway, it's okay. Bad. I'm going to so have to be careful. They wrote, they wrote him back so in. So he came back They in. wrote him back into that story. Um, yeah. They're like, well, there's nobody pictured here. That's because he didn't want to come to the party. They just kind of found an explanation for and yeah. wrote it in. He's not um, even in the picture? The older son? Mm-mm. 
No, I don't think he's in any of the images. There's, a, there's, of the some, other, there's some other things that my translation partner was really upset about, like how in the story of Noah, Noah's family is not there. It's just Noah. It's like just this one man. But like, American individualism doesn't pick in up the, on that stuff in the picture. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit! This is great. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna see how much of this uh, I can keep in here without uh, indicting anybody or, or uh, making you guys. <laughs> Uh, in any well, way in danger. I mean, this is what's fascinating about it, though, is that we've got kind of the idea of the Jesus story of the Bible because there's almost no literature that isn't just like super white. And I know that the Jesus story of the Bible still is fairly white, but it represents more diverse skin tones and it's way less like white Jesus-y than a lot of um, children's material that exists in Myanmar. And so that was one of the reasons. It's like the images are really cool. Yeah. And the thing is, the the book fundraised itself because Americans understand it. It was just For so sure. easy to get the money to print it. Um, so what we're doing now is that we're gonna we have all these funds that we raised to print it. And when we sold it um, within Myanmar, we gave it to people who couldn't afford it. But we also sold it to wealthy Myanmar Christians who can afford it. Um, which means it's kind of like a business now and that it's self-sustaining. And we're using that to write a children's Bible with indigenous Myanmar people. So it's not going to be translated. It's just going to be written by Myanmar Christians. We want to get 12-year-old kids to write some of the stories. We want to get women to write stories. So we're hoping to kind of use it to pay it forward. (laughs) Um, There's just so little. There's so little stuff that's done by local people. A lot of stuff is, is done just translated. And so there's like a group of Myanmar that's translating. They're hiring local guys to translate all of John MacArthur's books, like that kind of stuff. That's really normal. You go to yeah, such better things to be translating than that. Uh-huh. Yeah. We had an uh, acquaintance who was at a meeting with Myanmar church leaders and they asked him to speak. He was a, he's a foreigner. And he uh, encouraged them to focus on writing their own theology rather than translating Western stuff. And he told us later on after the meeting that he didn't think he'd be invited back to that group. Uh, They really didn't want to hear that. It's a bit of a money train to be involved in translating Western materials because Westerners get excited about that. So not only that, but it connects you to powerful people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a huge barrier to actually like supporting the development of indigenous theologies and the diversity that should be part of the body of Christ. Instead, we're just replicating Western theologies in places like Myanmar. I have a question for you guys. So I think that a lot of people will be at least somewhat aware of a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about, right? Like these, these sort of inherent issues with colonialism and sort of just exporting our American individualism and stuff like that. A lot of times we hear these critiques from people who have left the mission field altogether. I'm thinking of like Jamie Lee Finch. Is that her name? The uh-huh. worst missionary and, and uh, Corey Pegg's failed missionary podcast. Yeah. Basically people who are like, yeah, nobody needs to be a missionary. And then they say, and here are all the problems. What's interesting. The reason I wanted to talk to you guys and not, for instance, talk to one of them who I could have reached out to is I was more interested in hearing from someone who nonetheless is still in this field. And I I will probably come back to this question towards the end, but I'd like to just hear a little bit about from you guys, like why, why you don't just throw, throw in the towel and why, why you're deciding to stay and work on this stuff rather than just kind of tear the whole thing down. There's a lot of stuff in the past that's been done from colonialism to 
just how American exceptionalism like really colors a lot of how white missionaries interact with people, that it makes it really hard to continue continue working in that realm when you've seen some of the impact that people like you have had in the past. And I can understand how people would decide, hey, I can't do this anymore. Some of it is just the fact that being white is really fraught because there's a lot of wrong that our ancestors have done. And I think that it's more visible when you go outside of like the insular American Christian community. Um, And not to say that you can't see it in America, um, but I think when you go other places, you can see it more clearly, uh, just the damage that's been done, the pride that exists um, in the American church. Um, the way that people go, who go out into missions want to be masters. I think that that is, yeah. and I think that's why I don't like identifying as a missionary. Like I realize that people might look at aspects of our lifestyle and feel that that describes us. But what I feel like we are seeking is to live as brothers with people. And I, f- I feel like my faith has changed for the better because of what I've witnessed and learned from Myanmar Christians and Myanmar Buddhists and Muslims. So I feel like I'm the one receiving a lot of, um, of, of good um, work in my life because of what's happened to us <laughs> in moving overseas. But I don't think that's how a lot of missionaries would describe it. I think they are like... We're here to bring light into the darkness. There's all these light, dark dichotomies and looking down on people as lost. And we just don't embrace that, which is why I, the missionary label is pretty repellent to me. I think that initially, like a lot of my perceptions are very similar to what you would see in kind of a standard, like evangelical missions, like save lost people from hell. They don't know Jesus. They don't have the Bible. They're not enlightened like us. I've come to see things in some different ways so that I now, where I live, interacting with Christians in Myanmar, both both Westerners and locals, and I really would like for the Christians there to see how much God loves them. Because I think that, I think Christians really, really don't see how much God loves us. And so it started as like a very outward looking thing and kind of what I've seen as like the important work that I'd like to do is help Christians see that they're beloved by God. Not that I wouldn't like other people to see that too, but I think that if Christians don't, then, then what's the point, right? But but so to be clear, you guys are not doing any sort of like straight up evangelism, converting people, trying to get, Buddhists and Muslims to become Christians on the ground. That's not any part of your daily, weekly activities. No, not at all. And like a lot of people in missions who we know with COVID have been distributing like these sanitary packs to to people and they include like a pamphlet, like we're doing this because we love Jesus and Jesus loves you. Like we would never do that kind of stuff either. I just, we're just not okay with that. And we really just want to be neighbors with the people around us who are not Christians and not to use any of those kind of means to try and interest them in faith. So we don't, I don't think that our behaviors match up with a lot of the traditional. I mean, if somebody walks up to me and says like, I would like you to tell me about Jesus, I'm going to do that. But I'm not looking around, like kind of lurking in the shadows of places trying to pop out on people and be like, (laughs) 
let's have a spiritual conversation. I don't even know you. Right. And that's not like we're at a prayer meeting thing or just a get together with missionaries a couple of months ago. And one of them was like, okay, everyone have some prayer requests or something. And at the end he decided to do this prayer, which is, you know, so many group prayers and Christianity just bugged me so much. But one of his prayer for you was that by the next time you met, he, you would have started some spiritual conversations. Oh, with that, someone. Not just that, but that I could like tell them that about, I would have like, a testimony of spiritual conversation. Yeah. So yeah. that is just so yeah inherent in these conversations. I'm just like if I talk about spirituality with anybody, I'm not coming back to this group to boast about it. What? But that's really normal yeah, because you need to report yeah. about what you're doing and reporting on your good deeds is a is a thing. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh, there's just so much. I still don't really feel like. No offense, you guys have quite answered my question though, which is like, why not just go home then? Like, why are you still there? <laughs> what is it that spurs you to stay? in Myanmar and keep up this work like you know like why not just leave uh partly we love it there it feels like our home we have lots of friends there I would say friendships friendships yeah Yeah. um I mean and some people that you've been through some really hard times with and um this business we want to start I think the reason I was interested in going overseas at all like back before I even met Jim I was interested in it and kind of dismissed it because I was like man westerners just have brought a lot of crap to the world and I don't need to be another one. So I kind of dismissed the idea, but I've always been interested in business and in job creation. And that was something I always wanted to do. And so that was one of the reasons I was even willing to move to Myanmar in the first place was because here's a place where people need jobs. What can we do? How can we use our resources to create a better livelihood for people? And so that's kind of what we're looking forward to is why we want to keep on where we are right now. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, Let's okay. I think <laughs> let's have a little fun here as a way into some of this really dark shit. Can you guys paraphrase for me really quick? What is an example of a supporter email newsletter that would do really well, generally speaking, and get you a bunch of money or you know funding for whatever it is you're trying to do? And then what would be like a more honest? newsletter that would not do really well that would like you would lose supporters if you sent it well i mean the the emails that of course get the most responses are when we tell people we just had a baby but that's really nothing related to (laughs) (laughs) that's it's universal right new babies it is yeah you've had more years of experience with this i know when we first moved overseas i felt like i needed to like kind of help people back in myanmar or back in america keep a pulse on how we, we were doing emotionally and spiritually. And so I did update a group of women and probably a few, only a few weeks in, I realized what a bad idea that was because anytime I expressed any kind of like struggle or feeling of depression, there was just this, like, you need to pack up and come home. Like you're obviously not doing well was kind of the response. Like you have to be really, you know, at the top of your game emotionally and spiritually all the time, or I don't want, you know, or you should be coming home. And a lot. And yeah, I really struggled during 2016 because I just started feeling more and more convicted about the undue influence that the West and that white people have on poverty situations. Mm -hmm. And I started kind of speaking up a bit more about that. And it, of course, dovetailed with (laughs) Donald Trump's nomination and then subsequent election. And that and so that people didn't take that well either. And I got some messages from people that were like, as your supporter, dot, dot, dot. 
Um, don't get pulled. Don't. Yeah. So this, I mean, as your I'm boss, sure. basically. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Like I'm here to tell you how it is, even though I have never been to where you live <laughs> is really, um, what the mess, just like so much American, dogma american exceptionalism that like we american christians know how it is so is it possible I, to do not, i mean you, it's okay if you don't know if you can't answer this question but this is where my mind is going right now like i can imagine it's definitely possible to do kind of a robin hood style you know what we know the stuff to say uh, and we also know a handful of people who really believe in what we're doing. And we can kind of like really take these resources from the West and do some good stuff here. Is it possible <laughs> to do something good on a much larger scale than that? Like, I, I mean, I, I would imagine that like Methodists and Episcopals do like some work overseas. But I would also imagine it's like far, far, far less than like what you know, tr conservative evangelicals are doing overseas. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. There's a book called The Gospel of Freedom and Power that's a study of post-World War II attitudes of missionaries. And it kind of talks about why Methodists aren't involved as much overseas. And of a lot of it has to do with the those objections to the way Western imperialism works. And so you, if you see John Piper talking about missions, he poo-poos those folks for not caring enough about the lost. But I see that as they do care so much that they don't want to do what the Baptists have been doing. <laughs> so, yeah, but on a larger scale, I don't really know. I feel like that wouldn't, that wouldn't fly with people who want to give money because what a lot of people who give money to missions are being told, if you listen to like David Platt or John Piper, it's a lot of times it's like, if you can't go, the next best thing you can do is give. So people who have this guilt or inferiority complex or feel like they just aren't, you know, they're being flagellated by someone like John Piper for living their American dream. And then the next best thing they can do is give money. So those people wow. then get defensive when they hear things from people like us that don't coalesce with their fulfilling their next best thing. <laughs> and I say that also knowing that there's some incredibly generous people out there who are just really generous and really want to see good things come around in the world. And for sure. those people are definitely behind us. That's why we're yeah. still here, I think. Um, so, but yeah, as a whole, that's the dynamic that I think is happening. Um, the SBC does have the largest arm of American missions in the world. Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as like, yeah, uh, a single organization. Yeah. So I just see like David Platt and John Piper being like these huge motivators for the way the Amer Americans imagine missions and their role in it. Yeah, it's oh my gosh, it's but doing good is not easy. <laughs> and when you go to another culture, doing anything and even knowing like what the what you're doing, what the consequences of all of your doing is like, it's hard to know. Yeah, for sure. And and but so that's a true thing about the world. But that true thing about the world is not a very good slogan. And slogans <laughs> yeah. are how you make money, raise money. I mean, that's true in anything, not just missions, right? Like the most effective, the, the people, the pol politicians with the biggest uh, followings reduce everything down to sound bites. Like anything that is big and really popular has dumbed its stuff down into sound bites and slogans. Like that's how you get people to do stuff on the aggregate, right? It's like, I think that that's, one way of thinking about Jesus saying the way the way is narrow, the way is wide. Uh, of course, I was taught to interpret that as heaven and hell, 
I don't interpret it that way anymore. I think of it more like, oh, like on most things, 85% of people have no idea what the hell they're talking about. And like, (laughs) you got to find the narrow path people and they might not be, they might not have a very big bullhorn, you know? Mm -hmm. And complexity. People don't gravitate to complexity. And that is, makes it really difficult to talk about these things. Well, um, let's talk about these things because this show does allow for complexity. That's its whole uh, reason for living. So you guys have – you gave me a bunch of stuff to kind of work with here. And there's a list here of five items that you call some strong narratives sort of driving uh, the missions machine. And the first one is American exceptionalism. I remember when I first uh, moved to Myanmar in 2006, I met – an older Buddhist guy, and he was talking to me about how how much he loved America. And uh, I remember he said to me, I love George Bush. He's the best. And this was at a time that I think I was I was quite surprised to hear someone talking favorably about George Bush. And I just I just asked him why, like, why? Why do you think he's so great? And he was like, because because he's the only one who's still killing the Muslims. That's how. Yeah, that's how Myanmar Buddhists viewed him. Um, and that's not that's that's not a stereotype that can be applied to every Myanmar Buddhist. Right. But as far as a stereotype goes, I think it's fair. Um, wow. Um, and then if you talk to Christians, like if you talk to Christians in the Myanmar Church, a their, fair number of them their opinion really, is not that really love um, uh, Donald Trump. Um, um, and I've heard this is are they and they they're really fond of America because they see, they have this imagination and I'm not sure if it's inherited from missions or where but there's this idea that you're a Christian in an and you're not the minority and America will save you um a lot of that and and I've just tried to tell them I'm like no they like nobody's coming to help you out if there's a big problem like unless there's oil in your community <laughs> like there's just not that like yeah. there's plenty of persecuted small groups in Myanmar that yeah. that aren't receiving help of of the kind that they imagine America would give to to Christians. So there's this idea that America's a Christian nation, America will help you. And so there's just this great fondness for Donald Trump because he identifies as a Christian and because a lot of the missionaries that are are fairly conservative and also like him. So that's just yeah. kind of this thing that's yeah, circles through the Christian community. Is, so this brings up a really tangled and difficult, but really interesting question for me, which is like, what is religion doing for people? And I say this as a religious person, right? That like, if you, uh, I can't remember where I said, where I saw this, but uh, it might've been Karen Armstrong. It might've been, um, Philip and Carol Zaleski in their book, prayer, a history, but it's the idea that like a lot of people in all religions are basically wanting a good harvest you know, or a decent season of earnings for their job. You know, they want their family and friends to be healthy, uh, you know, and they want nice weather. Like, like basically they take these just incredibly basic human desires, totally reasonable desires, and then they just place them at the foot of their little shrine or their morning devotional or their whatever it is that they do. And so in that sense, that seems like a pretty universal human psychology thing such that I don't know that we can blame that on American exceptionalism. For instance, you you probably would find something similar among Buddhists and Muslims just in the in lay people 
of just kind of wanting to be protected, wanting to be safe, wanting to, you know, whatever, wanting a little bit more power if they're in a position where they have very little or no power. I'm wondering how you think about, like, like if, do you agree that that's a sort of a, a human universal that's interacting with the American exceptionalism? Or how do you see that relationship? I think Americans don't realize how much of their religious imagination is influenced by what they are born into. And so for everyone I know in Myanmar and everyone I know in America too, I think that your religious identity has to do with belonging. Um, I think this, that explains why people leave the church is when they've been treated poorly and they don't feel like they belong anymore. It's an identification of, it's a group that you belong to. And I think, yeah, it has sometimes a lot less to do with the features of that religion and more to do with having a group that, that is your own. Would you agree with that? I think in by and large, yeah. Yeah. I think that's. So in that, which so, is also, so that's a kind of a does, tribalism that you would say maybe explains some of this antipathy toward Muslims. If you're a Buddhist or a Christian and this desire for like this strong right arm of the U S and Donald Trump to like, Oh, well, they'll save us if something bad it's it's more like oh we're a part of a bigger better stronger tribe uh-huh yeah i mean there's a kid in our neighborhood who wears this t-shirt that's like america back-to-back world war champions like there's just <laughs> yeah. and i was like wow that really sums up the way that people see america when they haven't because myanmar hasn't been crushed by american militarism that's that's i think a large degree to which people imagine it Wow. Interesting. Okay. The next uh, narrative on your list is the doctrine of discovery. And I, I, I know I've heard this phrase somewhere, but I actually forget what this means. So will you um, enlighten us? please? Yeah. Um, so Mark Charles, he's an indigenous author. He writes about it in a book called Inse- Unsettling Truths, if anyone wants to dig deeper for that. But it's basically another, the doctrine of discovery precedes like manifest destiny in the States. And it's basically the inspiration for all of the, like the Spanish conquistadors going out and finding un, undiscovered, uninhabited lands, you know. Uninhabited by white people. Yeah, exactly. So it's this, this idea. And I think it dovetails with this idea in American Christianity of quote unquote, being Jesus or being incarnational. And so Christina Cleveland writes about this too, and she calls it uh, white sprawl, this ontologically expansive idea that you can inhabit any space that you walk into and, and that you can claim it for God. And I think that is huge in missions, this idea that like, I'm going to go and be Jesus. And what I see that turning into is a lot of people just acting like they are God. So they're acting more like Maui from Moana. Yeah. That's how we're like Maui from Moana is the embodiment of the way Christians interacted missions. Yeah. Yeah. That is really, that's so interesting. I, I will admit, I don't love combining that with the whiteness stuff just because I think it predates that. Like certainly I, I get, I understand the idea of like, to the Mayans and Incas, the Spaniards were white, but it, it, it seems to be more about economic power to me than it is about skin color, right? Like they, they wouldn't have cared what color the Inca and Mayans were. If they had also happened to be light skinned, they still would have slaughtered them all, you know, in their imperialistic bloodlust or whatever. But, you know, the, the point is basically the same, right? It's like that now that type of thing does hold in white culture in America. Right. So because it's a thing about power and it still holds right. here. Right. Right. 
Right. Like that might not have been where it grew from. I'm not a race scholar, but yeah, that's what it is now, I think. But like the first Christian in recorded uh, history that I found who went to Myanmar in like the early 1600s, like 1630, he was Portuguese, like Augustinian friar, who was going essentially to give communion to the Portuguese pirates who were basically slave traders. um, Oh, my gosh. Like what is now southern Bangladesh. Uh, so this friar heard that the neighboring kingdom was going to attack them because they didn't want to have their people stolen. Um, and so he went to the kingdom kind of to allay the king's fear and say, no, we're we're on your side, like we're your subjects or whatever. And he brought with him this Augustinian friar named Manrique, brought with him Muslim slaves as a gift. I think some of them he gave to the king as a gift and some of them they sold when they arrived but he actually recounts uh, like in this diary that he wrote that he's like trying to convince these Muslim slaves that he's captured, that he's about to give to the king, uh, to, the, to this Buddhist king, that he's like trying to convert them to Christianity and having a, a pretty hard time of it, apparently. You don't um, say after forcibly yeah. removing them from their lives and shackling them in a boat, he's I'm having like, a hard time so, conv- converting them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, now the, the Rohingya and the Muslim, there's there's several Muslim people groups throughout Myanmar, but there's two main ones in that area in Rakhine State now. Um, and they're clearly descended from from those people who were yeah. brought as slaves. So that's that's a pretty messy inheritance right there. There's something both so crushing and so incredibly exciting and liberating about spending time. Like like what I'm doing right now, one of the things I'm doing is just spending time imagining that I live where you guys live, right? That I have (laughs) just that I have these conversations with people on a regular basis. What would that be like? And it's it's crushing because so much of what I'm enjoying as I as I lay back in my comfortable chair and and look out the window of my mortgaged home at nice green trees on a decent, you know, plot of land here, you know, for in a suburban community and all the incredible things that I have and just thinking about like what that is at least partially at the cost of and then thinking about how religion gets tied into that and how that's the saddest part, you know, but then there's also this liberation of like, oh, the world, the world actually is different and, and like better, I think, uh, and, and aligns more with my d- deepest convictions than it seems like it is from this privileged perch. I, and that's not a question. I guess I'm just sort of processing this as I talk to you guys. As people who are living with a lot less somewhere like that, do you hear me say that and want to punch me in the face? Does that is that refreshing to you? I'm curious how you respond to that. No, I love I love those thoughts. I think that yeah, like we loom too large in our own worlds and realizing like that there is so much more. There are many different ways of being and that that is not all bad is really important. Well, the next thing on the list is is white supremacy. And if I maybe had an issue with uh, combining race with the doctrine of discovery because of the historical record, I have a lot less issue um, talking about white supremacy as still active in, uh, you know, American Christianity, especially as it exports itself. Right. Especially from mostly white denominations as we export that to other countries. I'm curious, where do you see this uh, white supremacy? Obviously, it's not a narrative 
that people are cho- they wouldn't know that they're ha- using a white supremacy narrative. But where do you actually identify that narrative in either the the actual printed materials or just the stories that people tell in this missions community? I think what the first place is you see it without even having to leave to go overseas is the way that people talk about the lost or dark and light and battling the forces of darkness and bringing the light of the kingdom into dark places where, where it's never been before. So some of that um, language kind of belies the deeper assumptions about what it means to be white and to be good. Um, I think that one example uh, that really struck me and shocked me was talking to a Baptist missionary woman who'd been in Myanmar for a number of years. And I was still new. And I was like, Hey, like, when did you get to the point uh, language wise where you really felt like you could have like really close friendships with women here? And she's like, Oh no, I'm never, I'm never going to be there. And I was like, what? I was just shocked because she seemed really uh, studious. And I thought like she'd been there long enough to be really good at the language. And I realized she's like, no, no, I'm never going to. And I realized what she was saying to me. She was like, I will never be friends with them that way. I would never. She was like, yeah, I've never shared like intimate parts of my life with a woman here. Like, so I just realized there was no interest in mutuality. This was about coming in and affecting change and seeing people flip seats for Jesus. It wasn't about seeking mutuality or equality or sharing a common life even down to the lifestyle that this woman had chosen. So I was really shocked. And and then I just started to see it everywhere after that. It can be a hard thing to quantify because it's like the way, the way that you see the world is colored a certain way. So I think for me, like the comment about George Bush was one thing that kind of was starting to shake me out of my conceptions and ideas about, about what America was the idea just that we we have something that is objectively better than what the people here have, whether it's Buddhism or Islam, and they just don't understand because no one's explained it to them clearly that that what we have is better and that and that they should they accept it would have a much better outcome is this implicit assumption in okay, we're going to share the gospel and coming and realizing like oh there's there's already people here that have lots of different kinds of knowledge that I don't have. There's a lot of wisdom here that I've not been acquainted with. And yet learning from friends who are, who are Muslims and friends who are Buddhists and friends who are Christian, that I've just been taught that to be an American, to be a white Christian American means that I've just got this wisdom to dispense. And it's really encouraged by by the power distance that exists in like the Christian community in Myanmar, you can be Joe Schmo from America and come to Myanmar and the church will invite you in. And they'll call you the equivalent of like reverend and like as a guest, first time guest, just, just because you're like white, you get the seat of honor automatically, like in the Myanmar church. I've, I've heard this too. My brother and sister-in-law spent a year in the Congo and it was the same way there as well. And they'll ask you to share or preach yep, exactly. without knowing your theological resume or anything like that. Yeah, literally know nothing about you. And um, But it's not because people are dumb. It's like, I think people would assume, oh, they're just like, it's because they believe they need to show honor. Well, and it's and a they, different understanding they, of hospitality. They're operating under like the client patron model of society in a lot of ways. Americans walk in and they're 
and they're automatically patrons, they're automatically powerful, whether they think they're powerful or whether they think they're wealthy or not, like they're automatically classified that way. Yeah, I've experienced Um, this just in, I've done sort of a mission trip to Thailand kind of twice, uh, but mostly just been to Asia as a tourist basically or on tour. And once you're kind of aware of it, you're immediately aware of it. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I mean, check this out. I haven't told this story I haven't told this story on the podcast uh, before, but like one time on tour, a guy in our band brought a gun on accident on the plane to China. His dad had left a gun in his son's backpack and not and forgot to grab it out and forgot to tell him. And oh my gosh. we made it into the security at Beijing on our way south to Guangzhou and they've caught it on this machine and you know it was this insane thing and i was like google translating on my phone and showing them videos of our band like no that's why we have these microphones you know this is we're we're here to play music and uh you know we were there for eight hours and we missed our connecting flight and had to go the next day but like the secure head of security in the airport by the end was like, hey, here's my number. If you guys ever have any problems, let me know. We're just like hanging out in his office, you know, talking about basketball. Like we had so much power as Americans. Yeah. We brought a f-ing gun to a communist country that doesn't allow guns. Right. That's like insane. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, had a friend who was in a really bad motorcycle accident and he's like, lower social status and so usually if you're a motorcycle driver in an accident you the fault get the blame lands at your feet and he was just found on the side of the road was brought to the hospital uh another friend alerted us to that and we stopped in at the hospital to see him and he was just laying on a bench in the hallway they hadn't done anything for him in about eight hours and he clearly had some a brain injury and his whole family was there like everyone was gathered and Jim just asked to talk to the doctor because we were like well we could pay to take him to a better hospital this was just a private hospital and then you talked to the doctor right? I, t- I talked to the you doctor you didn't even say much and right? I, I I wasn't like aggressive but I was just like hey we we would like to be able to take him somewhere somewhere else to a private hospital and the doctor said no and so then we were just like okay we'll see ya like we gave the family a little bit of cash and we left and then they called us a little later they're like the doctor moved him to another hospital like moved him to like the best hospital in town because we had shown up jeez we just showed up that's all like yeah. and and this isn't in a christian context anymore this was just a hospital right so this bleeds in actually to to the next item on your list which is there is this narrative that as white western christians we are the norm, right? We are just these sort of, you, you put unmoved movers. Like we are context free, basically. We just have a neutral understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our job is to just present this neutral understanding to other people. But already, Jim, you know, a few minutes ago in your kind of recounting some of your earlier experiences there in dealing with people of other faiths, you know, this kind of broke down for you quite early. And I'm wondering, like, you don't have to, but if you have any kind of like maybe even slightly embarrassing stories of early conversations you got in where you tried to sort of just convince someone of the of the plain truth of Christianity or or I don't know if you were always too cautious to do that. But I, I'm curious about anything, especially in those early years around this idea. I was fortunate, I think, in some ways, because I lived in a community where there wasn't a lot of people 
uh, who could speak English. So I ended up learning local language in an immersion type of context, which means a lot of listening. It means you do a lot more listening than you do talking. Yeah. And not to say that I didn't, yeah, have these sorts of conversations, but I think I was saved from a lot of those just because I was listening instead of talking. But yeah, I, I remember initially on like feeling this burden, like every time I would take a taxi that like, I have to have like a spiritual conversation. Like I have to be sowing seeds, quote unquote. That's the um, Myanmar missionary version of what we all deal with, which is the person on the plane next to you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But the, the interesting thing is that in Myanmar, talking about religion is not the same sort of a thing as it would be like in America, like the awkward I'm sitting next to this person. It's like, plane. what do you do for a job? That's what talking about like, religion is like. Because um, people will just straight up ask you, like, what's your religion? Like, Interesting. And not to say that they're like, tell me about tell me about how I can be saved. Like, tell me about. Yeah, it's just it's like, not a taboo topic the way it is. It's in the converse, like it. It's, it's a conversation topic. Like people aren't asking to be uh, proselytized, of course, but it's, yeah, America, it's, uh, it's kind of like the one, it's, it's one of the things that you're not supposed to talk about, which is interesting. I wonder if there's something too about like American Christians being frustrated that that's the case. And so, well, what we can do is like send a bunch of missionaries out and do that work sort of for yeah. us because we can't talk about it with our coworkers. Um, I don't, I don't know that, that would be, I'd, I'd want to have quite a bit more evidence before I claimed that, but that's an interesting idea. Yeah. It's like, we're, we're absolving people of their guilt. Or well, I, I, yeah. I, I have a close friend. He, he was actually reading the Bible before I met him. Um, he used to be a Buddhist monk and we got to know each other when I, when I lived in Myanmar the first couple of years. And when I realized he was reading the Bible, I was kind of like, Oh this is like this is like the dream situation. Like <laughs> yeah, God prepared that. Yeah. And he had actually gotten the Bible because there was a couple of Baptist guys who had they had met his close friend who was a tour guide and they'd gotten that tour guide to say the sinner's prayer while he was like guiding them around and and become a Christian, quote unquote. And so they gave him a, a New Testament in the trade language of the country. And that tour guide friend was like talking with my friend and said, oh, yeah, they they gave me this, like, but I'm not interested in it. I don't really want it. I just wanted some white, some white friends, some some foreigner friends. But he didn't want to throw a perfectly good book away. So he gave he gave this New Testament to my friend. And your friend is a book nerd. So he and he's a book nerd. So he so he started reading it immediately. <laughs> and I realized in our relationship kind of this power differential that existed and I felt this pressure like okay I've been sent by this organization and people are sending money so that I can talk with people about Jesus so that I can like translate stories into this language and there's like a pressure to to produce uh, to produce like a product to like have have a product and to like produce like converts like to have people that are going to form a church that you can be like yeah I planted that church as like the the, the end goal like that I was sent out to do. But I realized like, okay, I have inordinate power. Like I can just like subtly or to an American subtly anyway, be like, oh, well, what's your next step of faith or something like that? Like I can try and like basically push this person in a direction that I'm being encouraged to do. But I kind of realized I was like, I don't, 
I don't feel like that's a fair thing to do. Like I'm here for a short period of time. This person lives here. They're in this culture. Like this is where they're from. If they decided that they wanted to be a Christian instead of a Buddhist, the the ramifications for that would be would be like staggering. Like the effects that that would have on their personal relationships and their community with their family would be really bad. Like it would be a really destructive. Yeah, it would be like a destructive decision for them to make in a lot of ways. And so if I'm the reason, like if like appeasing this powerful person is the reason that a person makes a decision like that, like that's not a good enough reason. Like, yeah, especially if, when it's like appeasing just to to basically have friends with more social clout and power and influence. Yeah. Uh, Cuz I realize yeah. like I'm not I'm not going to be around for him forever like if Jesus wants to make him a Christian, like that's okay with me, but I really don't want it to be because of me. Like, I don't want this person to look to me and say, well, okay, like I'm your client now and you're my patron. Like I didn't want that kind of relationship. And what you're describing is very, like you chose a different route, but this happens all the time. This is exactly what happens to a lot of foreigners when they go overseas. Well, so this is fascinating because if you believed that his soul was going to go to hell and that by, you know, for whatever reason, becoming a Christian, even if his motives were not pure, and if you, but, but you believe that that would send him to heaven for eternity, then none mm-hmm. of this other shit matters at all, right? Yeah. And that's the fundamental the end, difference. The ends justifies the means and the anxiety about what the ends might be is, I think, what motivates people to do all these relationally abusive things. It has to be, at least in this context. I mean, people do all kinds of relationally abusive things just to get power and money in other contexts. But in the context of, you know, evangelism and missions work in conservative Christianity, I mean, the the big engine that drives the whole thing is people are going to hell, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I think I had the fortune of the, the cult that I grew up in and the general like, churches that we went to were not... We're not talking about hell a whole lot. You might be one of the only people who's ever started a sentence with, I think one of the fortunate things that I had (laughs) growing up in a cult was. (laughs) Like, now I was very young, so they may have talked about it more. But I think that, like, my initial kind of desire to go was not so much like, okay, these people are going to hell if I don't go, but that... I found Jesus to be very compelling compelling, and I found the way that he was to be very beautiful. And I would like for other people to have an opportunity to see that. Hey, you finally answered my earlier question. There, there it was Jesus. But but I would say like, yeah, exactly. But I'd say like, and this is where a lot of people will call us heretical is that we don't think people are going to hell just because they don't see that in this life. Like, well, nobody on this, no one listening to this podcast is going to have a problem. I don't think anybody's going to hell. And I've <laughs> I've argued for as much on the show. Yeah, well, I think it's a great discussion, but I think people, a lot of people don't believe that in missions and they're terrified for themselves and for everyone else. Oh, because they, they so. go around interacting with people like, okay, I have to say the right things in this language that's not my native language, or I have to get my translator to say the right things so that so that these people won't burn forever it's like if someone says you know i do think we ought to be in this war but i'm just going to enlist and volunteer to be on the front lines you know of this battle or whatever 
and and I, and I'm the tip of the spear and I have all that pressure or even like I'm going to sign up to be an officer and strategize this battle with all these pe- all these men's lives under me or something like that. Yeah. Does that resonate or am I am I off? No, I think that the picture that a lot of people have uh whether they're in missions or sending missions is they'll never say like yeah, I'm going to go save someone. But everyone uses language that's talking about, I did this, and so this person, like, changed their eternal destiny. Getting back to what you were talking about earlier about, okay, what what do people want to hear? And people in America who've been conditioned to, okay, you have to, you have to support these people so that they can go save the lost. Like, they want to hear about lost people being saved. Like, they want to hear, yeah, they want to hear that. There's an organization that has a lot of people from America in Myanmar that every month they have to send in a report to their supervisor. Of all the people they talk to. Of all the people they talk to about faith, all the people that they baptize that month, like all the... Counting heads is a big deal. And so that, that, like, people become statistics, people become your product. And it's just a really unhealthy way to interact Like, it's a really unhealthy way of being. Brianna, you gave me some notes beforehand about some of the kind of crazy stuff you guys have interacted with in terms of some of these bigger missions organizations that you're no longer uh, part of now. I'd love to hear some of those stories. I mean, you know, it's not I don't want it to just be gossip, but there is a sort of an expose element to this of like, we do need to know what we're supporting with our missions dollars. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a lot of misogyny in the missions realm, <laughs> for starters, but you have more stories than I do. I mean, I, to talk about insularity, you have you have like Christian evangelical subculture that's quite insular. And those people are sending the missionaries. And I think there's this imagination that, okay, well, they send them and then they're out there. But very often what happens is they go out and it's hard to be out there and it's hard to make relationships with people. And my wife mentioned earlier, some people just don't want, don't even want to have like close relationships uh, with people who are of a different culture or different language than they are. And so it becomes like an even smaller insular community where you connect with the other evangelical white people and you have your international church that you go to, which is, yeah, all white people that are getting together. And that, I think, I think that that can be like good because it means that some of the unhealthy stuff like kind of stays contained a bit. Oh my gosh, that is not what I thought you were going to mean by good. (laughs) (laughs) They're quarantining their own shitty sociocultural and theological uh, systems. Well, like just the fact that many Americans don't like being an American and speaking another language surprises a lot of people (laughs) like i've met people i remember meeting germans one time that were just like tourists that came through where i lived and they saw me speaking with someone there and they were they just they didn't believe that i was american when i told them (laughs) we have a reputation (laughs) what about some of these abusive leaders yeah so we um when we got married without naming names (laughs) we got married and we were part jim was part of an organization that focuses on like team-based church planting outreach. And so he had already been with the organization. He had actually helped the organization get into Myanmar because he, um, his time in Myanmar had preceded the organization's um, placement of people there. So he helped 
what were now his team leaders to even get there. And then when I joined, when we got married, they were just like, well, we don't trust you. You're a newly married couple. We need to like have time to observe you as a couple and see that you actually have a good marriage before you can go off and do anything. So you need to live really close to us. And leadership was like fairly hands off until, until we got married. Yeah. And so we were just like, this sounds really unhealthy. And I had no previous experience. So I was just like, all my red flags popped up. And I was like, I don't think we can work with these people unless we have like some kind of mediation. And so we kind of went into like, we asked for some help talking through like future plans with these people and they refused to allow mediation. There was like member care, quote unquote, with the organization, but really what they were, were people who were supposed to snitch. And so they would talk to us They're and then they would share information. Spies. Yeah. And so there's a huge con- ethical conflict of interest, which I didn't even realize at the time that these people called themselves counselors and they worked for the organization, but they were supposed to report to um, our leaders about everything we shared. Oh my gosh. Uh, you, you would be was, not disbarred, but you, you'd get your license revoked in the States for that. Oh, you should. I mean, these people yeah. should. And and this is really common. After we left the organization, I shared the story with people and I found out tons of people have had similar experiences. With like other organizations. Every mission organization Almost every mission organization same. has had similar stuff where you're, you are like divisive or you bring up a conflict and suddenly like they'll send like a member care person who will supposedly be counseling you, but they're really snitching on you. Incredible. So it's actually really, really common. And it was so stressful. It was awful. I just didn't want to move overseas and work with these people. And I was so sick about it all. Yeah. And we tried for a very we long time. We tried. So. And we had this crazy email chain of like the things that this leader would write to us were insane. And so we're like, well, when we finally get like someone above him to listen to us, we'll have all this paper trail. And they didn't even like he said, he just said the craziest things like said, we are spreading the leaven of rebellion. And he, and we asked for mediation. He's like, no, I'll be your mediator. <laughs> just the dumbest stuff. And the, nobody thought that it was worth stepping in for. Um, in fact, people above him refused to talk to us because it wasn't Matthew 18. So just a ton of messy, messy. What's Matthew 18? Um, where you're supposed to be, uh, it's like the order of uh, the supposed favorite order of operations for dealing with conflicts. Oh yeah. Go with one brother, go with three brothers. Uh Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, except it was like, go to the one brother again and again and again and again. So anyway, close to where before we left, we were sitting in one of their training sessions, which is about protecting kids from child abuse. And I was just so disillusioned. And I was just like, we don't even have kids yet. And I'm already worried about being part of this group. Like, if they won't listen to us, why would we stick around? Like, why why would they listen to a kid? This is just such a sham. For these organizations, what, what percentage of the employees and the leadership structure are in the States? And what percentage are like tend to be outside the states i don't know that's a good question uh i would say like probably 10 to 20 percent are in the states and and the rest would be overseas because a part of me wonders and this is not even necessarily because people are choosing this but just because these are companies that organizations or whatever that mostly operate outside of the states they have a lot less oversight and they're faith organizations so there's even less government oversight that there's kind of a natural selection of, I don't know, like the worst kind of controlling men end up uh-huh. in these positions instead of being a pastor of a local church where everybody sees you all the time and is around and like the elders are there every week and, you know, stuff like that. 
Right. Well, and I think with some of these people, their churches are probably glad to get rid of them. They're like, oh, good. You can go work somewhere else with (laughs) these other people. But there is, I mean, there's so much sketchy counseling stuff that goes on. There's definitely a number of Christian missions focused counseling organizations in countries in Southeast Asia. And I've heard some pretty bad stories about just like really like unethical stuff because it's all ministry. There's like no very little accountability. And some of these people who go into missions are like, oh, wow, I actually am really good at counseling. I'll join this group and do pastoral care, even though I'm not a licensed counselor. Who who was like lived in Thailand and he was like, I really enjoy dentistry. So I'm going to like help people in these villages. Like he's not trained. Wait, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. Oh this is a guy I know. Like, oh my gosh. He, yeah. So he didn't go to like, dental school after that. No, no. Like, but he's quote unquote helping people. Yeah. But that happens within the missions yeah. community. And I think what really bugs me is what this does to children. There's already so much fundamentalism. And then on top of it, there's this idea that the kids are part of the ministry. And you'll see, this is one of the things that bugs me when I see missionary newsletters is like, how to involve our kids in our ministry. And um, so you've got these kids who are being told, like, already you're kind of insulated and isolated in a lot of settings. Mm-hmm. And then you're being told you're doing this for Jesus. And if you need any counseling help, you're going to these counselors who are not necessarily licensed, being told, like, you're doing this, taking one for the team and doing this great thing for Jesus when you're just a kid in a family that has these really strange motivations for getting into the whole thing in the first place. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> it's a quagmire. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it well, is. and you have on top of all that, like, yeah, kind of like what you were mentioning. the The issue of it is you have people who are supported. Like the financial support often doesn't come from the organization. Like with larger groups, like Southern Baptists, it does. Um, you have a salary. You have like yeah. a salary yeah. that other people raise, and you're more like an employee. But with a lot, with pretty much everybody else, you you have relationships with people, you raise your own funds, and then you get some oversight from your organization. But if you're if you're a shitty missionary, how are the people that are giving you money going to know that? Are and, they, and- they going to know that from your newsletter? <laughs> yeah. Like how like how are they going to actually like talk to the people that you're interacting with and find out what sort of person you are? it's like very fraught because there's not like this path to uh, there's like very little, it's like very opaque. You should tell them the story about Honduras when you were right out of college. So I went and helped out at this like internet cafe, which was started to like help fund this like orphanage slash like school sponsorship program. I helped out there for the summer. And then for my senior project um, in university, me and like three other guys wrote some software for that organization to use to help raise funds for the sponsorship program so that kids in this area in Honduras could get schooling. And I went down after after I graduated to like help finish up the software and train them how to use it. And when I got there, I just realized like, oh, the people running this children's home have some serious issues. Like there's abuse going on. And so I talked to the board of directors of the organization and, um, and they, yeah, they had seen it and they were like moving to take the guy out. And so they, they basically confronted him as the board of directors and he fired them all and like found a new board of directors. He, he ended up having to flee the country because the police were after him uh, at that point, but he operated for probably 10 years there. Um, yeah, it, it's one thing to say there are these particular anecdotes of, of really bad actors, but it's also true that like he was probably able to operate 10 times as long 
you know, oh, yeah. in another country as he would if he was trying to do it in Louisville or something, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. and so Jim, because he designed the software, they found a loophole and were able to notify all the people who supported him about what was actually going on. But he just picked up and started. He's in Africa somewhere now. Doing yeah. It. He just picked up and started somewhere else. He just moved somewhere else. Yeah. So it's kind of the wild west. Like people don't know what they're giving exactly. to. They just feel like they're doing their money's doing good. We were talking about this yesterday that like it's too easy to give money. It's yeah. It's too easy to give money, and it's and it's very common to feel that giving money is the best thing you can do. And it's much more expensive to actually find out what your money is doing. So these are really complicated things, not just for missions, but for any kind of aid project. So to like circle back to uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, we contacted the publisher because we were interested in um, translating it. And I wondered like, what, okay, what's their system? Like this book's been translated into, I think like 36 languages now. Who's checking it? Yeah. And I was like, okay, I wonder, I wonder what, what they're going to want from me as evidence that this was like translated well and turned out to be nothing. They didn't like, ask for a thing. It does because because they just, they get to say in the press release, it got translated uh, into Burmese yeah. or whatever the language like, was. Yeah. Well, and it would be so much work for them to figure that out. How would they know? They, so I think, well, they could, they, they could, they could, it could be done, but it would take more work than just saying yes. But yeah, yes. yeah, so. it, would, it would, it would be work and it would be money and it would be resources that would be spent. So we could have made that thing anything. I, just, just I mean, I feel world. like we're dissing people for being trusting a little bit, but I mean, but, I'm very grateful. Like we yeah. have personal relationships with most of the people who help us do what we do. And I feel like with a good deal of them, I'm able to share pretty openly about the things that are hard um, for us or theologically ways we're changing. Like there's safe spaces for that because these people are friends and we've had years of relationship before I moved overseas. But yeah, in general, I think just giving money to a group and not knowing what they do can be super problematic. So this whole thing is, it's such a big uh, cluster F and a quagmire, as I said earlier, the thing that I'm kind of, perpetually most interested in is kind of the individual or group psychology of it all. And so, I mean, I, I want to maybe find something to work on here or to be encouraged toward for myself and for the listeners. So like, if you could operationalize this a little bit into like, what, what kind of supporter of people's work? Cause you know, my wife and I, we support, a handful of missionaries, a couple overseas and a couple in the States um, doing work. And I, I've been kind of a little bit aware through some of Danielle's writings and whatnot of like, okay, I don't want to be that kind of supporter, but like just in your mind, like what could a, uh, just a listener to this show who is not in the missions field, like what could we be doing or like paying attention to in our own sort of like, personal like the reward centers of our brain or you know the way we communicate with you anything like that oh good question i don't know <laughs> let us think for a minute the, at least for me my biggest frustration um with supporters is that um and also the greatest reward with the other kind of side of it is some supporters just want to hear that we've affected change and other people are excited to hear what we're learning and those are two very different groups and we have both of those. And so the people who want to know what we're learning and who want to learn, um, uh, who are just curious in a non voyeuristic way, I think that is like probably the best thing that all of us can facilitate is just like 
a loving curiosity for people of other other lived experiences. And I think that that is probably one of the most redeeming qualities of any kind of missions enterprise is that there is some, maybe some smidgen of healthy curiosity underlying it where mm-hmm. we want to connect with other people in different and to, to share hu- like our common humanity. And I think that there's people supporting us who like are really excited to see evidence or glimpses of brotherhood. Yeah. And I think that that is what we need to be seeking in giving Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that and any kind of humanitarian aid without equal, without equality as its ultimate goal is is oppressive, um, basically. And I think that giving to any kind of project and not wanting it, equality to be the ultimate outcome is damaging to yourself and your your idea of yourself and also to the work that could be done. That was a good answer. Yeah, I think that as far as like doing good, it's really hard to do good and then like quantifying like whether or not you did good and how much good that you did like is is very hard as well well and it all becomes about you and even the doing good you. idea like, is about yourself so as as far as like as you evaluate like okay we have x amount of dollars at the end of every month and we are behind these different kinds of things like and we'd like to fund these kinds of things yeah i would encourage people to to know what kind of people you're sending those funds to and to know how they talk about other people, like how they talk about people that are different than them. If there's someone you personally know, like how do they interact with people that are different than them? Do they interact respectfully? Do they interact in a way that values other people in a way that values other ideas? I mean, you want to, I think encouraging, I wish there was a different word than brotherhood. Because it's a little uh, uh, patriarchal. It feels sounding. a little patriarchal. I was looking up synonyms the other day, and I didn't see anything I really liked. Like, but just you want to encourage the kind of work that that doesn't look down on other people. Because um, people with privilege like have resources. Like we have, we have resources. Um, we also have a kind of poverty. I think um, so. There's like a community poverty that I think uh, a lot of white Christians have. Um, and so we can learn about what it is to be in a community from people who are in different communities and cultures. And of interdependence. We have a poverty of interdependence. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned earlier yeah. that Unsettling Truths book, Brianna. Um, <laughs> are there any other resources you guys would recommend, books or accounts to follow or anything like that for people who are interested in thinking more, reading more about sort of like missions work in, in the modern day? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, Danielle's book and, um, Amy Peterson also wrote their two memoirs written by women who became disenchanted with missions. But I think there's a book I read recently called decolonizing wealth by Edgar Villanueva. And he just talks about philanthropy kind of as a broader, it's not specific to missions, but just the charitable work and the money that stays in the hands of largely white people in charitable work and um, just kind of critiquing that. And I thought he brought up some really excellent ideas. He's an indigenous American author. And so he just has, yeah, I think that would be a good book. But as far as accounts to follow, there's um, Caitlin Curtis. Uh, she's an indigenous American author, Christina Cleveland. There's an Instagram account called No White Saviors. There's there's a lot of people out there doing work that, that is often called decolonizing. And I think that's probably 
the best search word you could go for in terms of, yeah, kind of eroding this pedestal we've set ourselves on in how we understand our relationship to the world. And I think starting with those voices would be what I would recommend. I have a huge list, but those are a couple. Um, Another book I would recommend, or just another thing that I think white Christians need to think about is the complicity of the white church in racism, because we have a heritage as American Christians that is pretty ugly. And without confronting that, we're perpetuating it overseas. And so I think that's something we have to think really hard about is um, the way that we've excluded and silenced people of color in the church and how that, how segregated the church is and how, as long as the wealth remains with white people, that means white people get to define goodness and export it the way they want to. And it's just a divided gospel, I think. So, yeah, that's something that I was hoping that we would get to, but we just really didn't have time for it today. But I was going to connect it back to a previous episode of this show with Michael O. Emerson about, uh, I think it's called Evangelicalism's Racial Blind Spot or something like that. But mm-hmm. in their book, Divided by Faith, that he wrote with Christian Smith, they talk about what's called the church growth movement, which is also really influential in international missions work. And the idea being just like, get people who are like each other into churches and then the churches will grow because I don't know, people are tribal or something like that. Uh, And it works. (laughs) It is effective numerically and it is sort of the opposite of the gospel. It's basically a pyramid scheme as we see it overseas. Yeah, it's a religious pyramid scheme. So we may have to save that. Um, Here's what I'd like to do. And you guys can can say no to this. If you say no, I'll take it out. I'd like to, after this episode airs, get some follow up questions from patrons and do uh, a patron only like exclusive episode where you guys just answer their questions. Do you think we could make that work? Yeah, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. As long as you're okay with the quality of this recording. <laughs> yes, that's fine. We can, we'll, we'll live. Uh, we can live with it. And then I'll, uh, Brianna, I'll have a link to your Twitter account because by the way, I, I follow you and I would, I would highly recommend following Brianna on Twitter. Um, I, I think you're a great follow. What about if people want to support your work financially? Um, yeah, I can send you the link to our, our blog. There's a giving link through there. Okay, so. great. So that'll now be in the... What? We could be con artists. You don't know. You, but you yeah, just, uh, it sure would be an interesting way to go about raising money uh, by undercutting <laughs> all the foundations of people's uh, uh, certainty about what their money is going toward. And then also, I wanted to mention this earlier when you were talking about looking for other children's Bibles. Um, I have been recommended and we bought a copy of the one that Desmond Tutu wrote that also is very racially aware and uh, does not come from that reformed theological perspective. I forget what it's called, oh, awesome. but I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well for people who are interested in that. Cool. Great. Yeah. I mean, our hope with the book that we're going to have written with me and our people that will fund is that it will be indigenously written and we can translate it back into English for all the white people. So <laughs> that would be awesome. I mean, of course, yeah. if you had, if initially you had tried to translate the Desmond Tutu Bible instead of the Jesus storybook Bible, you, it would have been the equivalent of like, how much money can you raise from evangelicals versus how much money can you raise from mainline Protestants? You know, it would have yeah, not maybe. gone as well uh, if you had <laughs> gone the, the tutu route. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we just Robin Hooded it up. <laughs> I love that. I, that part yeah. of your guys' uh, job and life is like so incredibly just down my alley. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, this is a crazy, enlightening, infuriating, complicated conversation. 
And I appreciate you guys being so honest uh, about everything. Yeah, it was fun to talk. Yeah, it's really the tip of the iceberg, I'm afraid. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, you asked for different stories and examples. And I thought, oh, all the explaining that would have to go. I don't think there's time for <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It really is. I mean, and we also didn't talk about how the pandemic is affecting people. I mean, you guys are recording this from Australia because you can't be in Myanmar right now. And I'm really interested about that. So perhaps there'll be some questions uh, in the follow-up yeah. episode around that stuff. Yeah, cool. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. And I guess I'll talk to you soon after uh-huh. we get those questions from people. Sounds great. So we've got a lot of resources here in the show notes. Something that we forgot to mention is that Brianna wrote a really cool piece about uh, Francis Chan's missionary organization and this uh, particular promo video that was spread widely sort of from the lens of someone over in Myanmar and what that video looked like to people over there. So I have a link to her piece. We've got a link to the Desmond Tutu Kids Bible, uh, the Unsettling Truths book that was mentioned, um, the Amy Peterson book, Dangerous Territory, Danielle Mayfield, D.L. Mayfield's book, Assimilate or Go Home, as well as Decolonizing Wealth. I've also got links to Brianna's Twitter and Instagram and uh, links to Caitlin Curtis, Christina Cleveland, and No White Saviors. And a link to support the Randalls if you'd like to financially support their current work. And okay, I think that's it. So uh, the Patreon, of course, which I mentioned earlier. Oh, thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. And he's also open for more podcast editing work and his email is in the show notes Um, but about that patreon we didn't do an ad in the middle because i mentioned it up top Uh, really great episode this week if you're not a patron and you'd like to hear these exclusive episodes or if you'd like to join and be a part of the facebook community it is for patrons only that's five bucks a month patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod click become a patron if you are in a season of life where you cannot afford that right now no shame email me there is a sliding scale you have permission podcast at gmail.com times are tough for a lot of people right now i don't want that to get in the way okay we'll see you guys next week